When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks to Babbel for supporting our show. Here's a special limited-time deal for you. Right now, get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash filmspotting. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. This is the best day ever. It is the best day ever. So is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and every day from now until forever. Do you guys ever think about dying? 2023 was an exceptional year at the movies, a notion supported by one of the strongest Best Picture lineups in years, one that includes the biggest movie of the year, Greta Gerwig's Barbie. This week, the Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips stops by the film-spotting Mojo Dojo Casa Studio. It's our Oscar special. Our picks for who will win, who should win, and who should have been nominated. Get those Oscar ballots ready. It's all ahead. Brewski beer me. On Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting. Yes, we are here primarily to talk about the Oscars this week, Josh, our deeply researched industry insider picks for who will take home the trophies on March 10th. I hope everyone got the sarcasm there yeah. that I was ladling on. I, you, you must have done a lot of research, Adam, because <laughs> not any on my end. We do have other important business to get to as well, though. Round one of Film Spotting Madness, best of the 1950s. Yes, it's the most glorious time of the year. Our annual movie bracket competition, one round per week until we crown a single film, the best of the great movie decade, the 1950s. Those round one matchup polls are live as we speak. You can vote at filmspotting.net. Polls close on Monday, March 4th at noon central time. Round two polls will open at that same time. More info about Madness, including the 64 film bracket, and a link to take part in our bracket prediction contest is all at filmspotting.net slash madness. It's not a film spotting Oscar show without Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. Welcome, Michael. How are you this evening? Good, Adam, Josh. I'm I'm just I'm Oscarific. Thanks. <laughs> the last time we saw you, we were in enjoying an incredible meal together after a thrilling film spotting rap party in LA. And then I think you got stranded in Southern California for like three weeks. You just got back, actually. <laughs> <laughs> Literally three nights though. If I had just followed Josh to the John Wayne Airport in Orange County, is it still called I'm the John telling Wayne? Nice. I know. We and then I tried weather. to show you the way out, but mm. you know what it is, Michael. I think 
I was struck. You are just, you know, for a fellow Midwesterner, you fit right in, in LA. You were so comfortable bouncing around the city. And I think you just didn't want to leave. That's true. And I was, I was arrogantly just holding my keys out no matter where I was going on my rented, you know, rented fit. I think it was a Honda Fit, just like my one year old, <laughs> just hoping some valet would pick him up, but it never happened. But they always they always ignore the fits, Michael. <laughs> we are excited to have you back. We're excited to have you back on Film Spotting. It is our annual Oscars extravaganza. We'll get to our picks, though. Up front, I have to wonder, Josh, who's more likely to draw more of Michael's ire, the Academy for their absurd competition pitting art and artists against each other or us for our even more absurd competition pitting art and artists against each other we call that film spotting madness <laughs> no i was shocked michael that you said you'd be willing to participate to some degree i mean usually usually you duck out of this nonsense i'm trying to work build the ire and while also burrowing it so deep that it will uh -huh. next by next year i'll be an enthusiastic participant instead of just <laughs> Instead of just a fiercely ironic one. Well, you'll get there. The further back we go over the decades, Michael, we'll be really getting to your sweet spot. We just need to get to like the 1890s. <laughs> oh, that really. The 50s. <laughs> that Edison yeah. short. That, I love the Edison short this year. <laughs> I know. I know. Okay. That Melies well, Edison play in is going to be brutal. <laughs> Melies might have won an Oscar if the Academy existed way back then. We are now going to share our picks for. Who should win? Well, we'll start with who will win, because that's really what we're all about here. Oscar prognostication. Who mm -hmm. will win? Who should win? And then who should have been nominated? We will kick someone out to make room for our new nomination. We're we just we gradually, power. We gradually get higher and higher on our horses, as I yes. hear you describe that progression. <laughs> that's it. That's exactly right. So we've got the four acting categories up first and michael since you are our guest we would love to hear in the category of supporting actress the nominees are emily blunt for oppenheimer danielle brooks the color purple america ferrera barbie jodie foster naiad and divine joy randolph for the holdovers who will win who should win and who should have been nominated uh it is statistically impossible for Divine Joy Randolph at this point to not win for the holdover. She has won everything. I mean, she just won some award from the, the American Automobile Association. I mean, she's winning every every trade. <laughs> wow. Even people that have never voted for anything. But no, she just has hit every, I mean, I think almost 90, 95% of the possible wins. And it's just, it's just one of those performances that's large enough. Uh, it's a newcomer, new enough, not brand new, but new-ish new to film. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I have a slight reservation about whether or not it's deserving because I think I have a slight reservation about a lot of things about the holdovers. It's a little less than top 10 Oscar stuff for me, you know, but, uh, but she's going to win. She's going to win. Who do I want to win out of these five? Is that, mm -hmm. is that your next question? Mm -hmm. I'm trying to anticipate. Yeah. I mean, it is. who do I, I really would prefer, you know, America Ferreira, frankly. Really? For, huh. for Barbie, yes, yes. I think that monologue has become the most, that was the most interesting and the most divisive monologue in a massive hit last year because some people just thought, ah, it's feminism for dummies. I don't want to hear it. Da, 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 da. And then I just, I also, again, I just thought of the, you know, bunch of 14-year-old boys that had a sleepover, you know, at our place and went and saw it. And it was probably, it was probably the most, the biggest blast of that particular 
point of view they'd heard in a concentrated form in a major movie. Uh, and I just, I think it worked. And I think she worked, she made it work. So yeah, America Forever, let's go. That's what I say. I'm just so tired of watching myself and every single other woman tie herself into knots so that people will like us. And if all of that is also true for a doll, just representing a woman, then I don't even know. Do you have a candidate, Michael, that you wish should have been nominated? And if so, who are you kicking out? You know, mean, it's mean. I'd probably kick out Jodie Foster, who, who may be the most technically skillful and most Oscared and most everything in that category. I think the work in Nyad is a little broad and a little strident for me. It's there's something that, and it, partly it's just the way that it's directed. I don't think that, I don't think the director really knew how to coach dimensional performances out of those people. I, I think probably he, you know, I, I'm guessing with Annette Benning and Jody Foster, they thought, well, we're going to run this. Let's just go. I don't know if it's, it's anywhere near her best work. So I, I would kick her out and I'd go either Rachel McAdams for Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. Uh, hey, or, and here's here's one that nobody ever would pick. Audra McDonald in Origin. Audra McDonald, who I revere from the stage work I've seen her in. She's, she's just like a titan of, of, you know, of the musical stage. Fantastically good actress in every medium. And she's got one five-minute sequence in origin, as Miss Hale is talking about, you know, one of the, one of the stories that ends up in the Isabel Wilkerson book and as part of her research, and it's just it's just a textbook example of of subtle power and uh, how to not call attention to yourself and just make that material sink. I love her because I would have loved to see her win. Josh, maybe a good category to start off with, because I know we're both going to disagree with Michael on what? a point or two, and we're what? going to agree with him. Or I have a good feeling that we're going to agree with him. I'm going to start by agreeing with him, and I'm very glad that I am, because, Michael, it sounds like you have a, a good sense of the pulse of what's been happening in early voting. I have looked into none of that. I have done very little to no, let's just say no research in making these predictions, which is not smart. But I also think Divine Joy Randolph will win. So just an instinctual pick there. But for me, it's some of the things you said, Michael. It's This is sort of the category, if you look at Oscar history, Best Supporting Actress, for new faces. And, and she is, as you pointed out, just you know to the Oscars at least, a new face. I feel like there's a lot of affection and goodwill, uh, not from you, Michael, but from a, a lot of people, including Oscar voters, for the holdovers, more so than, and here's the crucial point for me, more so than the color purple is my sense, because Danielle Brooks would be the other new face that you could see this award going to. But I just think the holdovers has more of a hold on the Academy, and it's just basically a cozy, familiar Oscar movie in a lot of ways. Um, who should win? I feel better about the performance than you do, though, Michael. I think Randolph rooted the holdovers in so many ways. And I know I've mentioned this on the show, but the first thing I think of when I think of the holdovers is not necessarily Paul Giamatti, but Mary, the character Randolph plays, sitting against that record player at the Christmas party that they end up at, just lost in her own thoughts, listening to The Temptations, sing Silent Night. It is this bit of nonverbal 
inhabiting of a character where that you just don't sense any acting at all. It's it's almost as if she's performing in a corner while another scene was going on. The camera was pointed at something else going on in the scene, and it just happened to look over. And that's who she is being in that moment. And I think she brings that sort of authenticity to so much of the movie. I had you got stuck with babysitting duty this year. How'd you manage that? Oh, I don't know. I suppose I failed someone who richly deserved it. Oh, the Osgood kid? Yeah, he was a real asshole. Rich and dumb. Popular combination around here. It's a plague. Uh, and you? You'll be here too? I'll buy my lonesome. My little sister Peggy and her husband invited me to go visit them at Roxbury, but I feel like it's too soon. Like Curtis will think that I'm abandoning him, you know? This is the last place that my baby and I were together, not including the bus station. As far as should have been nominated, I, I'm still, uh, in doing the, the research of looking who was in this nominee list, I was shocked anew that Julianne Moore was not in there for May, December. I mean, she's a previous nominee five times. She won once for Still Alice, and, and maybe that's the problem. Maybe she's sort of on a nomination pause after that win, um, or maybe voters just didn't like her character in May, December. That could be, too. It's a very tricky, icky character. Um, so that's who I think should have been in the place. And I'm with you on this, Michael. I would have kicked out Foster. I don't think it's her fault. Um She's playing in Nyad a bit of a thankless role, but it's also a thankless character in the main character's life. So it's like doubly thankless. Um, and that is those odds are stacked against her in terms of performance, I feel like, when it comes to Nyad. We're going to agree, at least up front here, three for three on Divine Joy Randolph. I think she will win for the holdovers. And I'm with you, Josh. I think she should win. This is a category that has the most discrepancy for me in terms of my ballot. I'm thinking about who my five would be, the five I put down on my Chicago Film Critics Association ballot. There's the most discrepancy here between that ballot and the Oscar nominees. Four of the nominees weren't even among my top 10 supporting actresses of the year, though now that I have seen The Color Purple, I hadn't when we submitted those ballots, unfortunately. Daniel Brooks would be in that group somewhere for sure. So, so make that only three nominees. Michael, I, I don't have, I'm with Josh. I don't have the reservations about the performance or the movie. Love the holdovers and love divine joy Randolph in it. In terms of who should have been nominated, you know, I had Scarlett Johansson in asteroid city as my number one supporting actress turn of the year, but that's, that's more of a stretch than my number two. And I really like your inclusion of Julianne Moore, Josh. I agree that it is kind of the most shocking omission here, considering her standing and the quality of that performance and, and also the quality of that film. It's going to come up again. But my number two in this category was Michael's pick, Rachel McAdams. Maybe an actress we've, we've taken for granted, maybe not. And I say that just because I looked up today, I Googled best Rachel McAdams performances or ranked Rachel McAdams performances. And most of the movies are movies I don't really care a whole lot about, or let's just say, Josh, we didn't deem worthy enough to review on film spotting. Okay. So you've got some good turns. Like she's good in Dr. Strange, of course, going way back in mean girls. She's very good in spotlight. We certainly saw how funny she could be with game night. Oh yeah. After this, after this movie, I don't think we'll take her for granted. Again, the comedic ability is there, but she just so deftly hits 
all the right emotional notes. I rewatched the scene today that really closes the, the film and it's the, I got it scene. And those little tears, the, the reaction she has where it's very easy to see in the moment how she's reacting to her daughter saying, you know what, <laughs> this big transformational moment, this big milestone in my life has finally happened and I'm all prepared. And she's very proud of her daughter. And also when she says those words, you don't need me. The way, the way Mick Adams internalizes that and, and you understand that, no, she doesn't need you in this moment and it's dawning on her that she's going to need her less and less as she gets older. Um, this is how they work. So you just pull I know how to do it. I've been practicing my room for two months. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes. <laughs> All right. Well, then you're, um, you don't need me. It almost brought me to tears just sitting at my desk watching it, and it's all McAdams. It's a beautiful so. scene. I mean, I still it's still one of the great, as we said in the live show in L.A., there were so many great last five minutes on screen last year. Like, I haven't seen that many movies mm-hmm. stick a landing so well in years, and, this, and McAdams was the key to this one, absolutely. Well, here's where you guys can jump on me, except I... I can't overly defend this choice. It's not like I have strong feelings about this movie in this case or this performance, but it it did come down to thinking about how tempting it would be to kick out Foster to make room for McAdams because it's by far my least favorite film of the bunch. But you know what? The more I thought about it, in terms of really getting a sense of what each performer uniquely brings to their characters. And maybe it is because it's such a thankless role. And Josh, as you said, in, in a thankless movie, in a lot of ways, I came away feeling like I couldn't really imagine anyone else in that role than Foster and making me like, and making me really care about that character. I don't mean, I don't mean really just like, I mean, being invested in that character and what her arc is. I don't know if anyone else could have pulled it off, but Foster and I don't feel the same in terms of uniquely bringing something to the performance. I don't feel the same about America Ferreira as Gloria in Barbie. So she's out. I'm kicking her out. I don't feel good about it because I like the performance and I like the movie. But if someone has to go for McAdams, Rachel's in, America's out. I think that's a direct attack on me. Yeah, I'm going to let you take that, Michael. I'm somewhere in the middle. (laughs) I did not like the speech, but I liked her presence as the mother figure overall in that film. Um, I take your point, though, Michael, about that speech being directed perhaps at a certain segment of the audience. I just thought this was a movie so smart and subtle up until that point and comedic making those same points that it kind of stood out like a sore thumb. Maybe I shouldn't hold that against Ferreira, though. Let's move on to Best Supporting Actor. The nominees, Sterling K. Brown, American Fiction, Robert De Niro, Killers of the Flower Moon, Robert Downey Jr., Oppenheimer, Ryan Gosling, Barbie, Mark Ruffalo, poor things. Michael, start us off. Uh, okay, it'll be Robert Downey Jr. It shouldn't be, but it will. Uh, uh, why? It's good work, and the way the screenplay is structured, uh, the Robert Downey Jr. character is the third act, and so you need to have a performance that's certainly working in all major respects, and, and it is. I think it's 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 it is very satisfying to see that actor somewhat disguised in terms of the bald pate and you know the very unglamorous look and he's playing a little older than he is in most of the scenes he's 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 finding interesting shades of 
ambiguous uh, detestability. <laughs> How long did he testify? Honestly, I forget. The whole hearing took a month. An ordeal. Well, I've only read the transcripts. <clears throat> Who'd want to justify their whole life? You weren't there? As chairman, I wasn't allowed to be. Are they really going to ask about it? It was years ago. Four years ago. Five. I, I, I'm not sure it's really all that uh, compared to, you know, in my view. I mean, I'd be thrilled if Sterling K. Brown or Mark Ruffalo or Ryan Gosling, less so De Niro, uh, but any of those three, I'd be fine with it. Uh, if I had to pick one, I'd actually go Sterling you K. Do. Brown for American Fiction then. That's what I would okay. say. I'm going to ignore the Kenosha rule, the Kenosha <laughs> principle with Mark Ruffalo, although I love what Mark wow. Ruffalo is doing in Poor Things. Uh, and the one I would kick out, I hate to say this, it would be De Niro for Killers of the Flower Moon. A good performance. Certainly, he's probably best in a long time. It's not, He's not a dialect guy, you know? I don't think he's a guy who comfortably finds who that 1920s Oklahoma weasel is. It's just in the sound of him. It comes and goes. It's not, you know, it's good performance. It's just not quite... To, you know, up to that level, I think. I'd go Paul Meskel in All of Us Strangers, Andrew Haig's uh, really, really singular story of grief and love, longing and coming out and repression and all of it. And it's it's a it's a very, very tricky film and a very, very deft performance, uh, without which it, it wouldn't work, uh, even, with, even though everything else about All of Us Strangers worked. Love the love. For Paul Meskel and, of course, all of us strangers. Josh? Yeah, it's Robert Downey Jr. who's going to win this. I just did the math. It's the third times the charm award for him. This is after Tropic Thunder, after Chaplin. Um, he's he's punched his ticket. He, he's ready to turn it in to the Academy. <laughs> I love when you really break down the analytics, Josh. Yeah, I mean, this is what you got to do when it comes to the Oscars. Who should win? I don't know, Adam. I mean, we've we've probably topped out on the amount of praise we can give to Ryan Gosling. So he just should win this award yes. for sliding down the hood of that Barbie dream car alone. <laughs> Who should have been nominated? I'm going to go back to May, December here. Uh, Charles Melton. He more than held his own against oh, yeah. Oscar oh, yeah. Vets. You know, it Oscar is? Vets, Julianne Moore, who I already mentioned, and Natalie Portman. That would have been my pick. And Michael, I am so glad that you kicked out Robert De Niro from this illustrious group before I did. Um, hopefully you'll take the bullets for this, but I agree with you. I think my, my issues with the performance and they, and I'm with you that it's a good performance. It's not, it's just when I'm thinking about the top five of the year, they were less technical and more just the fact that the obviousness of his character's villainy was something of an issue I had with the movie overall. Um, and just how other characters in that film, um, didn't quite register it when he was delivering the villainy at the volume he was delivering it. I, I basically just needed more of the conflicted Jimmy Conway. He gave us in Goodfellas for this guy. Um, and that's not what we got. And so then I don't think it was one of the top five performances of the year. So Bobby's out. Charles Melton, the kid is in. Bobby. 
That's what wow. that's what Adam and I call him. I mean, you're so kicking dismissive. Him, yeah, you're kicking him out and you're calling him Bobby. I mean, that, hey, you that's... started it, Michael. Okay, well, you I'm started gonna put it. some I'm going to put some more respect on his name, a little bit more respect on his name here in a moment. Who will win? Yes, here again, three for three. It's Robert Downey Jr. I was all set to suggest that the Oscars and Oscar night might play out just like Louis Strauss's cabinet hearing, where the sure thing, the the <laughs> rug just gets pulled out from under him at the last minute and Gosling takes great. it. Gosling. It's not going to happen. No, Downey is he's too good in the movie. I think he's been too good throughout his career. And unlike Strauss, he seems genuinely to be universally adored. So if they're going to crown him, then crown him. They might as well. I think it's a worthy performance. Should win. I've said this now probably 27 times to your point, Josh, in really harping on how much we love Gosling, too. I love all three of these performances, Downey Jr.'s, Gosling, and Ruffalo, so much that they're kind of in some order, 1A, 1B, 1C. 1A on my ballot was Gosling, and I'm standing by my man, even if his new coat and his Mojo Dojo Casa house are a bit much, and he does drink a few too many brewski beers, I'm standing by my Ken. I'm rooting for Gosling on Oscar night. It is my dream house. It's mine. No, this is no longer Barbie's dream house. This shall henceforth be known as Ken's Mojo Dojo Casa House. You don't have to say dojo and house and casa. But you do because it feels good. Try it. Mojo Dojo Casa House. <laughs> Who should have been nominated? Okay, here we go. This is a first. This is a first in all the years. The three of us have done this Oscar show together. I'm going to say the words. The Academy got it right. After those three, Gosling, Downey Jr., and Ruffalo, I had four names competing for the last two spots on my ballot, and both Sterling K. Brown and Robert De Niro were among those four. And it's easy to say, well, De Niro's De Niro. He's won before. He doesn't need the accolades. It's basically the Meryl Streep argument. Let's put someone like Glenn Howerton for Blackberry in there instead, or Milo Mikado Granger for Anatomy of a Fall, or Paul Meskel, who I I do, as I said, adore, and and I love that performance. Let's mix it up, put someone else in. But I'm going to say, sketchy dialect or not, I think it's easy also to take for granted how slippery. For me, Josh, I see it completely opposite as you do. I think it's a very slippery and complex performance that De Niro gives in Killers. I don't think the villainy is is quite as obvious as you do. And then Sterling K. Brown is not only a perfect counter to Jeffrey Wright's Monk, just in terms of his pure energy and charisma in American fiction, but that that moment when his mother says something hateful to him, it's really devastating. Intellectually, We know that the character knows he shouldn't hold it against her because of her condition. She's suffering from Alzheimer's, but he's just not in a place emotionally to be forgiving. And I like the way Brown plays that moment. I also just love the sharp wit that he brings to it. Speaking of the mom, there's a scene later with her and Wright where she says that she says something about their father always thinking he was a genius. And Monk, as we do, assumes that that she's referring to him, to Wright's character, because she's talking to him, but also because he's this smart writer and he's this academic and he's got a healthy enough ego. But because of her dementia, she's just confused. And, and she, she says Cliff, she does really mean Cliff. And because of Brown's performance, we know exactly why their father would have thought that that that's an element, this kind of fierce intelligence, I think that he really brings to that character. 
Did you know dad had affairs? Oh, for sure. How? You could just tell. Lisa told me she saw him kissing a white woman once. Uh, why did I have no idea? Why am I the last to know? Because you love them too much. Enemies see each other better than friends. So what am I saying? I'm saying that I'm not kicking someone out, and I'm not going to put someone else in just to do it. The nominees shall stand. Wow. You just can't bring yourself to be mean, huh? No, it's not it. It's not it, Josh. Those are the five. They deserve it. I mean, it's so weird with democracy about to fall, and you're just, and you, you're more just about like, well, let's just keep the Oscars as they are. You know, you, you yeah. know they, they yeah, will stand. It. Yeah, yeah, okay, all right. <laughs> but you also could have just said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Michael's right. You know, Sterling K. Brown all the way. You know, I could have yeah. actually. You know, the next time you're right, I'll say that. <laughs> <laughs> that brings us to lead actor, the nominees: Bradley Cooper, Maestro. Coleman Domingo, Rustin, Paul Giamatti, The Holdovers, Killian Murphy, Oppenheimer, or the recently mentioned Jeffrey Wright for American Fiction. Michael. Uh, Will Wynn, I would have to say, this is a tough one. This is the toughest among the toughest, I think, because I think it's very close between Giamatti and Jeffrey Wright. I'm, I'm, I'm going to predict, as of this date, Jeffrey Wright for American Fiction. Uh very close call. That would be amazing. Yeah, should win. I mean, it, uh, the only one that would kind of bum me out a little if you won, which you won't, is Bradley Cooper. I think the other four, Coleman, Domingo, Giamatti, uh, Killian Murphy, I mean, uh, Jeffrey Wright, I mean, that's just excellent work in different directions all the way. I, uh, you know, should win. I guess I would actually say Jeffrey Wright. Wait a minute. Why, why are these books here? I'm not sure. I would imagine that this author, Ellison, is black. That's me, Ellison. Yeah. He is me, and he and I are black. Oh, bingo. No, no bingo, Ned. These books have nothing to do with African-American studies. They're just literature. The, the blackest thing about this one is the ink. It's not a fabulously complex role. It's a reactive role, and, and he, it takes an actor that good to make it a vital center to a film where it's it's like come for the social satire, stay for the, all the family drama you just described so well, Adam. That's that's one of the great payoffs of that film and why I think a lot of people are actually enjoying it a second time because it's so much, it, it's a really pretty nicely detailed and, and a lot of good cross currents in this sort of all this family drama. It's all very good. It makes a movie stick, you know. Um, so I, you know, that's from, and if Coleman Domingo, like against all odds, won, I mean, he's a wonderful actor, good mm -hmm. film, really good performance, you know, but that's what I would say. Jeffrey Wright should and will, I'd kick out Bradley Cooper, which is, I think a very deft impersonation, which isn't quite a portrayal for me. Uh, and I go Andrew Scott for all of the strangers since I'm already yeah. kind of on that, but right now, this week, I am rethinking on that film a lot and those two performances, but yes, that's, that's my hmm. Josh. Love all, love all of the, all of a stranger's support, Michael. Such a great film. Uh, Will win. I'm going to go the other way. I was torn as you were between Jeffrey Wright and Paul Giamatti, but I, I went back to the math, Adam went back to the analytics and this is, <laughs> oh no, this is Giamatti's second nomination and it's Wright's first. So, uh, you know, just this is. This is how the Academy tends to work. You put in your dues, right? And then I also think that there's maybe, 
maybe more affection for the holdovers than American fiction, though the fact that it does have multiple nominations does make me give pause. And and if the Academy wants to present themselves as more radical, not that I necessarily think American fiction is that radical of a movie, but if they want to look that way, this might be one way to make that gesture. But but my bet is, is going to go with Giamatti. Uh, who should win? I think it's probably Killian Murphy, whose performance I resonated with the most among this group, even though I largely agree that most of these are really strong. You know, it's it's not the we talk about the most acting this time of the year. It's not the most acting, but it's the most eye acting. And you know what? That's what that movie and that role and the gargantuan crisis that is taking place within this man's head needs is those eyes to hold all of that so that we're not told everything that he is thinking about and processing and working through, but we see it in those eyes. So I'm going to go with Murphy. Um, should have been nominated. My choice is going to seem like a long shot. Tail you from Past Lives, the painfully pining romantic figure. But you know what? Past Lives got a best picture nod. So once it was on the Academy's radar to that level, I think it's completely legit that they should have considered his performance there. And I'm with you, Michael, on kicking Cooper out. I'm with you on it registering more for me as an impression of Bernstein that I appreciated the dexterity um, and the technicality of that. And somehow there wasn't a second where I didn't know that I was looking at Bradley Cooper. So I I can't quite get as far as a top five performance for me from Bradley Cooper. He would go to make room in my world for tail you. I thought that Paul Giamatti would be the favorite here. And that's who I had written in for who will win. But as I was wrapping up my notes here earlier today, I did see that Killian Murphy won the SAG award. I think he's going to win. And I think it might be, I I just couldn't shake something that I, I brought up during our review of the holdovers, Josh, a commenter on letterbox basically said, well, it's just Giamatti doing Giamatti things, predictable expressions and gestures and beats. Now we correctly dismissed this during our (laughs) review, but, but I do fear that maybe there isn't enough capital A acting there mm. for the Academy. And I agree with you, too, about the subtlety of Murphy's performance overall. But when you compare the two performances, Murphy did transform himself. His appearance right. with the weight loss, with the voice, with that very specific mannered style of speaking. I'll talk more about that in a moment. Of course, Oppenheimer was also this tremendous hit. I love every choice Murphy makes, internal and external. I think he will win. I think Killian Murphy should win. And I'm I'm with you. And I know, Josh, you agree as well on not only who to replace, but you're a fan of this performance. You've mentioned being a fan of the movie just a few moments ago. Although I'm not going to spend a lot of time talking about what was my number one film of the year because some other nominations maybe seem too far-fetched where I thought all of us strangers, Josh, kind of like what you were saying with past lives, where I thought all of us strangers might have a chance at a nom was in it getting some recognition for this category for Andrew Scott. Mm-hmm. It would have been deserving for sure. It, it's my single favorite performance of the year. And for reasons that we have enumerated on other shows, I think it is just consummate screen acting. It's an incredible performance. And yeah, Bradley Cooper, consider yourself fully reined in scott (laughs) is in and bradley cooper you are out 
It's so weird because I I really hope I'm not overreacting to uh, Bradley Cooper's obviously egocentric interview appearances, sort of on the uh, on the sort of the Oscar warpath, you know, uh, press Mm -hmm. tours where he just talks, you know, like kind of throwing shade at Killian Murphy for not having too much prep to do in terms of like a lot of research, and he kind of can't get off that self congratulations. the thing and with if the camera's going about just exactly how many years it took him to learn how to conduct like Bernstein and all. And there's there's some indicator there that does link to the kind of work we're seeing in that film, which I, I actually like more than most people. But hmm. but I to to the point of like do you do you believe him and sort of forget that it's a very busy and meticulous series of impressions rather than a portrayal. You really do when he's on camera with Carrie Mulligan, who mm-hmm. instantly makes him a better actor if it's a real give-and-take scene, like like that argument that comes late in the film, by far the best scene. And I just, that's the only scene where I, I thought he actually quit thinking about what he was doing. But I think that you're letting your sadness oh, get the best. Let me this at least finish, let me finish me. what no. I'm going to say. No. I think no. you're letting your sadness get the better of you. This has nothing to do with me. That's, it's about you, okay. so you should love it. You want to be sleepless and depressed and sick. You want to be all of those things so you can avoid fulfilling your obligations. What obligations? To what you've been given, to the oh, gift please. you've been given. Please. My God. The gift comes with burdens. Oh, if you had any the idea. burden of failing. I'm sorry to just admit love. it, but that's the truth. But above all, you love people. And I do love people. Well-fitting. We yeah. saw that performance, yeah, very yeah. much the same way. All, all three of us. I do want to go back real quick to Murphy because I mentioned the the choices he makes and that scene where he meets Damon's character for the first time. And I don't love Damon's performance in the film, but that scene, I think they're both, they're both very good. And it's probably been served to me a hundred times over the past few months between Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. And I'm going to confess, I've watched it a hundred times. And I was trying to think about what it is about that scene that I can't resist. And it is this duel between these two smart men in their own ways, both in their own ways, very practical men, and two men who actually desperately need each other and know it, but they can't let on. You're a dilettante, a womanizer, a suspected communist. I'm a New Deal Democrat. I said suspected. Unstable, theatrical, egotistical, neurotic. Nothing good, no, not even he's brilliant, but... Well, brilliance is taken for granted in your circle, so no. No, the only person who had anything good to say was Richard Tolman. Tolman thinks you have integrity, but he also strikes me as a guy who knows more about science than people. Yet here you are. You don't take much on trust. I don't take anything on trust. So I like that dynamic, but the only thing, Josh, more fascinating to me than watching his eyes, and and they they stand out in this scene quite well, it's listening to his voice. The thing that I think is so interesting to me about it, it goes back to something early in the film when he's a student and he meets Branagh's Niels Bohr character. And he says something like, it's not important that you can read the music to Oppenheimer. It's whether you can hear it. And Oppenheimer says that he can. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the more he becomes himself and he's, he's almost fully himself when he meets Damon's character, the more musical his voice becomes. It's like, he's trying to impose meaning <laughs> in a sense of order on a universe that is that is completely devoid of both. Yeah. And, and that that's something I love. I love watching him 
and I love listening to him in that scene and also in in that entire film. Yeah, there's a there's a confidence to his manner of speaking that grows as he grows in in knowledge. I mean, that so much of this movie is just about knowledge, and the more he attains, the more confidence he has as well. Let's get to our final acting category. It is lead actress Annette Benning for Niad, Lily Gladstone, Killers of the Flower Moon, Sandra Huller, Anatomy of a Fall, Carrie Mulligan, Maestro, or Emma Stone. For poor things, Michael Phillips. Uh, equally close call, I think, for me at least, to predict it's gonna whether it's gonna be Lily Gladstone for Killers of the Flower Moon or Emma Stone for Poor Things. Um, I'm gonna say it's Lily Gladstone, although I, it feels like a really juicy supporting turn to me. Uh, not quite a the, in the writing anyway, not quite lead mm-hmm. actress, but that's that's sort of an old fashioned objection. Um, who should win out of that group? God, I, any of the four, I'd kick out Annette Benning uh, from Niad for, again, she's wonderful in the right role. This is just a medium, okay movie. I don't think, I don't think there's much in the writing there uh, in Niad. I think Benning's fine, but I think the other four, Matt Stillhuller, Mulligan and Stone, they're all excellent. Uh, I would probably be happiest, frankly, with Sandra Huller winning. Hmm. Um, it's, it's so damn rare even these days for... Uh, a, a rapidly uh, diversifying Oscar voting pool and getting more and more international with every year, uh, even these days, it's it's not that often we get a, a foreign language performance. Uh, up, and it's it's foreign meaning, you know, non-English, I should say, non-English speak. It's actually, I mean, her work has been great since long before Tony Erdman, uh, and she's, you know, she's terrific at it and just keep... That the, the staying power of an enemy of a fall is fascinating to me. People just dig it. <laughs> they just, and Sandra Huller is just keeping people guessing because she plays it so cleverly right down the middle all along. Yeah. So that's those right too. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm sorry, but I don't know. You 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 come here, okay, with your maybe your opinion, and you tell me who. Samuel was and what we were going through but what you say is just uh, it is just a little part of the whole situation you know I'd so I bounce betting and I'd go oh god I have to go too I, I'm one of those guys Adam I'm just <laughs> one of those a guys alright Tiana Taylor for a thousand and one that, that held up a beautiful her work beautiful work uh Second time, it really just it didn't just feel like good work considering she hasn't done much straight drama uh, of that size, certainly never. Um, uh, terrific. Uh, Greta Lee for Past Lives, like Jeffrey Wright in American Fiction, it's a largely reactive role. That doesn't mean it's easy. Doesn't mean it's passive. It just means that you have to be the best listener on wheels, you know. <laughs> and that's uh, uh, and I think Greta Lee is. Exquisite, uh, just like I think Jeffrey Wright is exquisite in American fiction. So I, I really love that work. Well, Michael, I wonder if your predictions are maybe more critic predictions than Academy predictions, because Lily Gladstone, Emma Stone, they they've both you know just been praised everywhere in every review of those movies. Even even people who didn't entirely go for poor things talked about the audacity of. 
Emma Stone's performance. But when I'm thinking about Academy of Odors and having just watched Nyad last night, <laughs> I knew you were setting up Benning. She doesn't. Uh, have she a might chance, win. Josh. She she very well. This really? Is, yes. <laughs> this is she where might? my cynicism, Adam. I my guess she cynicism has comes lost into before. play. Yeah, yeah. Annette Benning has had five nominations now without a win. That trumps Mulligan's third time without a win, and Mulligan is significantly younger. Yep. She'll get another shot. Right. Stone has already won with La La Land. Right. And are they really going to award Emma Stone again so soon? I think they're going to go with Benning. And there is a fearlessness to her performance in Nyad that is undeniable and admirable. And the camera puts that right in your face. The fact that she is playing this this woman at this age without, you know, any you you assume very much body or facial transformation. This, this is not like Bradley Cooper playing Bernstein, right? right and trying to right. make himself look different. And I think there's a, a deep well of admiration for an actress doing that right now. And I understand that to a degree. Um, but it does come back to the math a little bit too. So maybe, again, no research, just looking at the basic facts. Um, I don't know how she's been doing on the path towards the actual ceremony. But here's the other thing. I mean, can't you see she's playing Diana Nyad, real life figure, the way Oscars have gone with biopics in recent years. Can't you see Benning getting the award, bringing Nyad herself, as we see in the movie, there is so much newsreel footage and actual footage of her, you know, very comfortable being on a stage in front of people. Can't you see Benning getting this thing, giving it to Nyad, who comes up, you know, she's going to be there, comes up on stage and gives the speech. I mean, this is something that Oscar voters think about too. So I don't know. I do get extra cynical. I remove myself like 10 degrees from what I've seen on screen and just think about the show itself. And it makes me think it might go to, to Annette Benning. My mind has never been clear. Don't you get it? The mind. This is what I was missing when I was younger. I've got it now. The mind does not swim 100 miles across the ocean, right? The body does. Yes. That's the other piece of it. Oh, there's another piece. Yes. I need to get myself functioning at the highest level. You're going to be my coach. I like that prediction. I, I, I'm going to enjoy eating it if, if you're absolutely. <laughs> I think Josh might have this one, Adam. You, you, he what might. Do you think? He might. He might. Cynicism, cynicism sometimes pays off. Anyway, <laughs> who should win? Yeah, Sandra Huller. I mean, the best performance of the year. I cannot, I still am trying to process my way through the complexity of what she is doing as this woman brought to trial for the murder of her husband. She has to, Huller, the the performer, has to hide from everyone as the character while still letting us in enough to be invested in her future and her outcome, even against, maybe not against, but alongside the future and outcome of her son. I mean, I watch this movie and I'm as concerned as what's going to happen to her as is going to happen to her boy because of the performance, because she's making us see the distress and the anguish that Sandra, her character is going through while also playing a character who's keeping their their cards so close to their chest the whole time. I don't know how she does this magic trick mm-hmm. is, is to try to keep us at bay and let us in simultaneously and never, never really suggesting whether she's guilty or innocent. As far as we are, we know as viewers, it is, it is the most dexterous high level of difficulty role. I think I've seen in years that she completely pulls off. Okay. So quickly who should have been nominated? Here's one that, 
it, it was never going to happen, but should have. Io Adebri for bottoms. I would have loved that. But here's my yeah. more realistic pick. Julia Louis-Dreyfus and You Hurt My Feelings. I mean, apparently Oscar voters just, they can't seem to see her as more than an Emmy winner. You know, that's a shame, but um, that's who I would have slid in there. And I would have, I would have actually kicked out Benning. Uh, again, I don't think it's a bad performance. I think here, Nyad's fresh in my mind, so I'm going a little long on this, but it's it's more of a fault of the film structure. You know, this is, it's chronicling Diana Nyad's in when she turned 60, all five of her swim attempts to make it from Cuba to Florida. And the movie to me felt like one repeated scene. It was like we saw the same scene five times. And I think that damages the performance because it's requiring Benning to hit the same beats for two hours with very little variation. And of course, she's committed intensely to those notes that she's hitting, but there's not there's not much more beyond that there. So I had written down who I thought would win earlier today and then seeing Lily Gladstone win the SAG Award last night really made me question whether or not my pick is going to win it over Gladstone. But I think it is going to be Emma Stone. Yes, Josh, even though she won fairly recently, and you touched on it, Michael, even if it's a little bit antiquated thinking, I don't know that the Academy, known for antiquated thinking, <laughs> is going to be able to to completely overlook the fact that Gladstone does feel like, in terms of the role, it seems like more of a supporting player to DiCaprio in Killers of the Flower Moon, whereas Emma Stone, by comparison, is in almost every single scene of Poor Things and is giving one of those high wire type performances where you could read that script. Anybody could read that script and wonder who exactly is going to be able to pull this off. Who should win? I love Stone in Poor Things, but I'm, I'm going to make it three for three. I think Sandra Huller is on her own high wire in Anatomy of a Fall for all the, the reasons that the two of you articulated. Maybe the crowd isn't ooing and aahing quite the same way. It's not, it's not death-defying in the way Emma Stone's stunts are in Poor Things, but she's remarkable. Who should have been nominated? I think like Best Supporting Actor, this is another category that is a pretty good showing. Three of the nominees were on my ballot. The ones we've mentioned here, Emma Stone, Gladstone, and Huller. The big miss for me is Natalie Portman in May-December. Yeah. May-December being the perfect match of performer and material. We come into that movie already judging Julianne Moore's character, Gracie. We have to learn to to distrust and, and judge how to judge and maybe even despise Elizabeth. But the more, for me, the more calculated Elizabeth reveals herself to be, the harder she tries, the harder Elizabeth tries, the character, the more that that facade crumbles, the more human she becomes, the more human Portman makes her, the more I dislike her and like her and empathize with her, because honestly, I can relate to her, even if her methods are completely dubious. And that that monologue at the end, I was rewatching it today. Every single question that the movie raises, and it raises a lot of unanswerable questions, she provokes just in her delivery, I think, of that scene. When this first started, I didn't know what to think. I knew that we had crossed a line, and I felt in my heart that we would cross it again. But now, I think... 
I've lost track of where the line is. Who even draws these lines? All I know is that I love you and you love me. So Portman is definitely in. Who's out? I do think, I think we'd all agree, Annette Benning is a national treasure. And she does deliver exactly what that character and what that movie demands. But if someone has to go, it's it's her. And that really is just mainly because of how I feel about the film overall. Maybe I shouldn't say this because everyone would just be happy if I threw Annette Benning out, I'm sure. But I didn't love Carrie Mulligan the way most everyone else did. But I'm saving her because the more I think about that performance, the more I blame the movie and Cooper's approach and his his direction. I don't think it's all on Mulligan. Ironically, I think Mulligan would have been great as Elizabeth in May, December. And you might say, well, of course she would have. She's a great actress, and she is. But the overcalculation issue that I've had with her recently, and I have it with her in Maestro as well, I think she would have brought that that same element that Portman brings to it in terms of seeing those wheels turning, making those choices as as both an actress and character would have been quite fitting for that role. So she might have been great there, but I'm really glad we got the performance that we did from Natalie Portman. She's who I would have loved to see get a nomination. A reminder that you can always view our top five lists, all of our picks and our Oscar picks over at filmspotting.net. Just click on lists right there at the top of the page. We'll get to Best Director in Picture in just a bit. First, though, here are a couple of very easy ways you can help the show. Whether you're a longtime listener or just finding us, take a minute, give us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Every new rating or review helps an independently produced show like ours reach new listeners. We did receive this recent review from J.A. Kinchin. I think I might know J.A. Kinchin's yeah, real I think name. I've met him before. Ah, I believe I met him in the Massachusetts area, perhaps. Anyways, here's here's the review. Still the best. Five stars. My go-to podcast for movies for many years. Checking in every week with Adam and Josh is a visit with old friends. Cordial, informative, and fun. Cannot recommend this podcast enough. Thank you very much. There's another way you can support us beyond those reviews. You can join the Film Spotting family over at filmspottingfamily.com. We want to welcome a new family member. That would be Mike Sanger in upstate New York. Mike wrote this. I got hooked after listening to your 2012 Sight and Sound review episodes with Michael Phillips. Hey, Zero Dark Thirty was an early episode for me that stands out. There seemed to be so much heated discourse at the time of its release, and film spotting had such a nuanced and thoughtful discussion about the film. Oh, I remember that one. Yeah. Had a lot, a lot to work through with yes. Zero Dark Thirty. A little bit more about Mike. We've been sending out this questionnaire to our new family members so we and our listeners can get to know them a little bit better. A movie that Mike revisited recently was Celine Sciamma's Portrait of a Lady on Fire, a favorite movie of the last five years that I probably would have missed without film spotting. He writes, a random favorite, Alex Cox's Repo Man, so strange and random in the best way, and the movie he credits with becoming a cinephile, Mulholland Drive. I had no idea what I just watched, but I knew I had to watch it again. His favorite <laughs> book about the movies, we've actually had both of these people on the show before, though 
one of them many more times than the other. Cameraman by Dana Stevens. We know Dana in that book very well, but also Pictures at a Revolution by Mark Harris. Again, thank you, Mike, and welcome to the family. In addition to keeping us doing what we're doing, your support comes with perks. You get to listen early and ad-free. You get our weekly newsletter. You get monthly bonus shows. You get access to events like we're going to play trivia spotting again here in the month of March, complete archive access, and more, filmspottingfamily.com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Adam, a lot of reasons you might want to learn a new language. Trips. I think we've both done this recently. We had trips planned and wanted to learn to be able to converse when we got to where we were going. Uh, Maybe brush up on a language you learned in high school. Debbie, my wife. She was asking, she's a librarian, as you know, and was noticing it would be helpful if she brushed up her high school Spanish. More patrons she's encountering working with using Spanish, and she can get by a little bit, but to do her job, definitely would like to have more conversations, fuller conversations. And as listeners know, I was right there. I was like, I can help you out. Let me introduce you to Babbel. Babbel's been sponsoring the show for a while. If you want to learn a new language with Babbel, you can do it in just three weeks. You can start really get going with the help of Babbel. And so she got the app, started using it. And it really is true. One of the things that we talk about with Babbel, what she encountered is this this notion that these lessons are designed for real people, for real conversations. That's exactly what she was looking for. That's exactly what she responded to. It wasn't a list of things to memorize or any other, other of these you know, tasks or elements that didn't really result in fruitful engagement. It was that conversational approach that Babbel offers that she responded to. So don't pay hundreds of dollars for a private tutor. Uh, Don't waste hours on apps that aren't going to really help you speak the language. Instead, try Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons. These are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking that new language in as little as three weeks, as I said. Does that mean Debbie is hearing this sound a lot? Because that's the sound I hear. When I'm on Babbel, Josh, as I'm learning a new language, and I'm guessing she's a pretty good student. Very familiar. Oh, yeah. Very good student. You you know that's true. So, yeah, I'm sure she's familiar with that tone. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 50% off a one-time payment for a lifetime Babbel subscription. It's only for our listeners at babbel.com slash filmspotting. Get 50% off at babbel.com slash filmspotting, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Film spotting rules and restrictions may apply. Move, said the great white father. There are many, so many hungry wolves. Can you find the wolves in this picture? Leonardo DiCaprio there in Killers of the Flower Moon, which was nominated for 10 Oscars, including Best Picture. We will get to our Best Picture picks in a bit. First, though, is Best 
director. Martin Scorsese's Best Director nomination was his 10th, making him the most nominated living director. Spielberg only has nine. He's two behind. You didn't know this was trivia spotting time, Michael. Marty's two behind who? Do you know the answer? Who has 12 Best Director nominations? Mervyn Leroy. No, I... I'd give you a hint. I'd give you a hint, except I don't know that you're fully up to speed on Film Spotting's marathon choices for this year. But starting soon, in fact, starting this month, we're going to be looking at the films of one William Wyler, who has 12 nominations for Best Director. Yes, Wyler has 12 nominations for Best Director. It is time for our picks for Best Director this year. Michael? Do you have a clear pick? Do you have do you have a great prognostication on who you think is going to win? Yes. And who do you think should? Yes. Uh, yes. The answer is yes to all of them. Uh, mm. It will be Christopher Nolan for Oppenheimer. If the movie didn't make a lot of money, we wouldn't be having this conversation, but it did. Who should win out of this group? Jonathan Glazer for the zone of interest. I think I think that that experiment remains one of the most uniquely successful and sobering feats of, of sort of directorial vision that is, yes, it's attention getting, but it's also not grandstanding, which is a very fine line, I think. A film I, I recommend highly, but very advisedly, depending, because people, I've never heard anyone come out and say, yeah, it was kind of what I was prepared to see, or what I've been told it would be like. It's still a, a it is it is a defiantly difficult experience in many ways. It's also that rewarding, sort of an equal measure for me. Would I kick out? Yeah. All right. Perversely, I would kick out Christopher Nolan for Oppenheimer and include Celine Song for Past Lives because it was my favorite film last year. And I, I think that was, a, yes, it's a, it's a, it's, you could just say it's simply a very, 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 very good directorial feature debut. But I think it's also the kind of the touch of grace and poetry and, and sort of humanistic tact and insight and everything that we just don't, we go whole years without seeing something like that from, you know, 40 year veterans or from somebody who's never made a feature before. So that's my swap. Celine Song in, Christopher Nolan, who can, you know, come back another day out and, uh, and Jonathan Glazer, I think. Okay. Yeah. I like that past lives recognition, Michael, in the director category for Celine Song. I mean, I, I, as you're using words like grace, I think of the camera work in particular and, and how it just always seemed to be moving around until it found where it needed to be. And, <laughs> and it always found the exact right right place. Um, and that's a quality maybe that can be overlooked because it's not ostentatious or showy, but it's appropriate. And it's what that movie in particular needed. So, so I like that. Uh, I'm also with you on Nolan, who will win. Uh, nominated five times before this, he did get a best director nomination for Dunkirk, but uh, he's he's never won. Uh, and I do think you know Oppenheimer uh, is, and I don't mean this as a slight, but it's just a fact of the material. It's the most Oscar friendly material he's worked with, probably beyond Dunkirk. So that's all going to work to his advantage. I would absolutely give this to award to Justine Trier. She for me. Beyond Nolan, a, a master of control, I would say had the firmest command of the film under their hand than anyone in this group. And maybe Glazer for me came the closest to your point, Michael, in terms of this control and command. But no one for me touched Trier, knew what what she wanted to do, knew how to go about it, and the final achievement was complete 
in, in making all that work. So, so that's why I would go with her. Should have been nominated. I mean, here's where I'm just going to quietly file because, you know, no one at the Academy cares my Wes Anderson grievance. Um, I'll put it in the suggestion box and it'll fall out the bottom. Apparently, you know, not only that he wasn't nominated as director for Asteroid City, but that the movie was shut out entirely. Uh, I'll, I'll just, you know, Henry Sugar's likely win in the live action short category. That's going to have to be the consolation prize. I'm not kicking out Nolan. Michael, I can't quite go that far, but I am kicking out another filmmaker who I generally really love his stuff. It's Lanthimos for Poor Things. This one just felt, it felt to me a little less on a second watch, but still enough. And certainly on that first watch. And I usually trust the first watch, a chore. This thing was a chore and the over direction was a part of that. So I I think he would be the one to go for me in this group. Well, I'll carry the water for Christopher Nolan and Oppenheimer here. I mean, we all think he will win, but I'm going to say he should win. And that's because it was my number two film of the year. But it wasn't an easy choice because my number three film of the year was Martin Scorsese's Killers of the Flower Moon. And the fact is there are, what, at least three, maybe five to seven sequences in that movie that only Martin Scorsese could deliver. Only Martin Scorsese could even conceive of, I think, in that movie. And also Anatomy of a Fall, to your point, Josh, that is, and and Michael, you mentioned this earlier, it's the film that left its mark on me, maybe the biggest mark of any film this year as far as just pondering it long after I left the theater and not being able to shake it and having conversations with listeners and other moviegoers. So really difficult choice. And here's, here's a perfect distillation of how problematic it was to have to make a choice here. You know, Josh, I would love nothing more than to tell the Academy how bad their taste is and how much better mine is. But not only has it happened once on this show, it's happening again. What? Man. The Academy got it right. The Academy got it right. Michael, he's just just trying to get Academy invited to be a member of the Academy. I don't think it's possible for critics, Adam. (laughs) Yeah, I don't think it's going to happen. The Oscars.org already said we were one of the best film podcasts. That happened years ago. We we don't have to cater to them. (laughs) No, look, these were were among my top 11. These five were among my top 11 films of the year. Poor Things was the movie that was just on the outside looking in. And- Of course, that does mean that there are other films in my top 10 that I like slightly more and I could go with them and I could kick Lanthimos out then, Josh, like you. But I don't I don't think putting in someone like Payne or Andrew Haig, who did make my favorite movie of the year or Wes Anderson. I don't think it makes more sense here. And and also, I don't think it's realistic. Payne's the only one who did realistically have a shot. And I did have the holdovers in my top 10. But based on the achievements that all of these five films are. I think they are. I can't believe it, but I think they are the five best directed films of the year. Haig obviously would be my pick if I was forced to sub somebody in and kick someone out, but no one is forcing me. So I decree, again, the nominee shall stand. <sighs> this guy. I, I, you, this I, guy. I, Josh, your theory about why Adam's doing this is good. I think Midas, he just didn't leave any time you know, to kind of do a little... <laughs> Eight minutes of Googling, you know, so he's like, ah, no, they're good. They're good. They're good. Yeah. Class went over today, Michael. There there was a a couple of questions he had to tend to. I'm just not going to be mean for the sake of being mean. I agree with the choices. (laughs) Mm -hmm. No, seriously. It's, you know, honestly, it points 
like an arrow at the year that was the fact that, that, Thank that you, Michael. You, you can look at like a very high percentage of, mm-hmm. of, of really damn good work from every, from, from newcomers, from veterans, uh, it's just, everybody had a good year, you know, and, and, and movie cores were among the people who could really say that. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's, I hope we get another one like it before, uh, you know, before the mm-hmm. next, uh, I don't know, before the next millennium. Before we get to Best Picture, we did want to give a quick shout out to longtime listeners, Carrie Ferver and Hamed Gazvini. Every year they create some really incredible custom cocktails for each of the Best Picture nominees. We've been doing this for years. We'll link to those cocktails and the recipes in the notes for this show. Just to give you an idea, their maestro-inspired cocktail is a Long Island iced tea. How about this explanation from Carrie and Hamed, Michael? It may not be the best drink, but it certainly is the most drink. (laughs) <laughs> very good uh, <laughs> fitting for this ostentatious bernstein biopic tequila vodka rum cointreau gin and lemon sounds like it will do a number on you cow wow. i mean I, I i i do enjoy my cocktails uh, michael you and i i believe had in, enjoyed a few uh, martinis in la i've never had a long island iced tea I never really? want to. I did not realize all of that was in there. That sounds well. I, I don't think that's usually in a Long Island iced tea, but that's their version of one. Oh I could gosh. be wrong. I could be wrong. Maybe those are all the ingredients. It has been like twenty five plus years since I had a Long Island. I, Adam, I had one. Rather- it was it was one of my first adult sort of you know like a nice adult brunch you know with some older graduate students when brunch. I was an undergrad. It was like a it was a hot muggy day in Minneapolis in May. And we were having those things at like 11.50 a.m. And that party was over really, really suddenly for a lot of people by 12.30. That's what I'm expecting. Adam, would you rather rather drink a Long Island iced tea, particularly Mm -hmm. this one, or watch Maestro again? Oh, load me up. Load me up with about 10 of them. Cheers, my friend. Cheers. (laughs) All right. It is best picture time. And you know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna move around the order here a little bit because there's no drama with mine whatsoever. And you guys don't want to hear me talk about, as Michael said, how great of a year this was. I think the movie that will win and the movie that should win is Oppenheimer. Mm -hmm. I like nine of these 10 films, Mm -hmm. minimum three and a half stars out of five. I love seven of them. Five were in my top 10. And as I said, Poor Things was just on the outside. Past Lives, I think I had it 12 or 13. Let so, me in, Academy. Great Let choices. Me in. Great choices. Well done. Pat on the back. <laughs> Honestly, the They're, Iowa the Iowa representation is really weak it. right it's now. True. In it's the probably Academy. true. I thought you were going to say I'm being Iowa nice, and maybe that's it. No, but no, no. I'm just there's, saying there, that it's... <laughs> there's only one film I didn't go for out of these 10. And it's an easy one to snub for me. And it's not a surprise considering our previous comments, our collective previous comments about this movie. Yeah, it's it's Maestro. And the movie that would be in instead would be another film that made in my top 10. It would be Todd Haynes' May, December. I didn't mention him. When I was talking about all those great directors who could have gone in to the mix instead. Haynes certainly should be one of them. And I'm sure he did get some some Oscar votes. But I'm tempted to ask who else but him pulls that movie off. But of course, the truth is no one but Todd Haynes even tries to pull that movie off. So it's it's one of those singular films from that filmmaker, and it's one of the singular 2023 films, one of the films that was 
a crucial part of my thesis about the year in cinema, the best films of the year in cinema, trying to reconcile the irreconcilable. So that that's an easy choice for me. May, December in, maestro out. Well, and, and in terms of Haynes, Adam, you know, we don't always think, at least I don't, to my fault, about the director's contribution to the performances when we think about the best director category. Mm -hmm. But as you're describing Haynes' work and who else would have made that movie, who else would have created the space? I'm not taking away from Moran Portman, but created the space because we've seen him do it with other actresses in particular in previous mm -hmm. films for those monumental performances that each of them gave. So I think that's to his credit as well as a director. I think that's well said. Josh, Michael, we'll turn it over to you. Who will win, should win. Who are you kicking out and in favor of what? Oppenheimer's going to win. Let's just, could we just quit talking about it? It's going to yeah, happen. Yeah, let's move on. It's going <laughs> to happen, all right? That's why I rushed through it. What should win? Past lives. It was my number one. I mean, of course, that's reason enough. The one that one Chicago critic put it as number one. That's reason enough. It should win the Oscar. <laughs> uh, they probably take uh, that into account, Michael. Yeah, but I'm also with Adam right down the line, you know, in terms of I feel pretty damn good about almost every single thing on that list. And for me, because I liked Maestro parts of it enough to actually recommend it, even with its problems, it, for the three star movie, whatever. I mean, if that's the worst thing we can, I can point my finger to on that list, good year. Very good year. But, you know, I'd be equally happy with Zone of Interest if it would, in terms of a should win. Uh, never will. But, you know, past lives is my should win. But I would definitely kick out Maestro, yes. And I would say I'm going to put in, since you've kind of covered the May-December front, yeah, I mean, you know my preparation is really just, you know, sort of quickly responding to whatever the previous person said. <laughs> I'm going to say Return to Soul, David Chow's film, which not enough people have seen yet, which is very nearly as good in every respect and very different from past lives, but it's set largely in Seoul, South Korea, and it's about a young woman raised in France, uh, was um, a, a Korean national, going back to Seoul to find out what her birth parents are up to because she has never met them since she left 25, 30 years earlier. That film is, is uh, that paid off wonderfully a second time. And uh, you know, sometimes you see movies in a clump, four or five a week, it was like that uh, Anatomy of a Fall for me. I liked it the first time, saw it again just recently, loved it. And, you know, it's not the difference between hating it and loving it. It's the difference between liking it and really kind of being ready for it, eager to see it a second. Return to Soul. That's mine. And I hope people see it. Since I'm a sucker for self-flagellation, Michael, I'm going to go ahead and admit it here. I'm going to admit it on both of our behalves, Josh. Return to Soul. We already felt bad enough. We didn't see it in 2022 as most people considered it a 2022 film, but many considered it a 2023 film, including Michael, and we didn't see it last year either. Yeah. Fel you, felt you it got the a cracks. year you're planning on seeing it? or, or I, I, I don't know. Maybe <laughs> 2043, I'll finally get to return to Seoul. That, that's when it's eligible for film spotting consideration, Michael. So get back yes. to us. <laughs> All right. Oppenheimer's going to win this thing. Anatomy of a Fall should win this thing. Who should have been nominated? I filed my Asteroid City grievance. So here I'm just going to ask, would it have been so outrageous to nominate in this category, Best Picture, an animated film? Specifically, how about Hayao Miyazaki's The Boy and the Heron? Mm. I think since its late December release, more and more people who have seen this, have recognized it as one of the master's finest works. You look on Letterboxd, it's got a four out of five star average. 
I was delighted watching, as I do every year in great anticipation, David Ehrlich's annual video essay countdown of the best films of the year. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, number one, The Boy and the Heron. Loved seeing that. So this is definitely enough filmmaker track record, credibility, and audience and critical approval to have earned this a Best Picture nod if the Academy wasn't so provincial about animation. And if people are saying, yeah, this is pie-in-the-sky dreaming, I mean, spirited away, Miyazaki is on the Oscars' radar. This is not that ridiculous. Spirited away, yes, in the animation category, but it did win. So that would have been amazing to see for me. Who should have been kicked out? We should probably stop beating up on Maestro, but, you know, thankfully this is not your 1990s Oscars when something like this would have swept multiple categories. (laughs) I'm still nervous a little bit that, you know, given the Academy attention it has received, multiple nominations, it's on their radar. Maybe this is a surprise shocker, but it does feel like given the new blood in the Academy voting ranks and so forth, that it's it's kind of something of a relic as far as the Oscars are concerned. However you feel about the film itself, just the kind of film it is feels a little bit like a relic. So, so yeah, I would have Maestro take a hike. The Oscars are Sunday, March 10th. You can see which ones we got right and many more that we surely got wrong. And you can view all of our picks at filmspotting.net slash lists. since you've had one of those nightmares tell me what was it about that's from the trailer for dune part two which comes to theaters this weekend we'll have a review on next week's show and we are as ready as we'll ever be josh having just rewatched and reconsidered dune part one last week i have already seen at least quick glimpses of your responses to Dune Part 2. I don't want to spoil anything, but I know, Josh, that you liked it. And I know, Michael, you liked it as well. You both maybe seem, and I'm basing this off of a blurb, but you both maybe seem to have a reservation or two. But on the whole, your thumbs up on Dune Part 2, which means I'm I'm coming in just even more determined to take down both of these films. You oh, know gosh. It. Hmm. We'll yeah. we'll see what happens That's, next week between the two of us, Michael. But uh, what do you what well, do you, you shame think me on for part being, two? You shame me, Josh, for being too nice. So now I'm going to have to be extra mean. Oh, next I week. see. I see. Well, I like I like that you've determined that you're going to be that way before seeing the movie. I think that's that, right. That shows, well, that shows I saw me. Dune Part One. I saw Part One. <laughs> what more do I need to see? <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good enough. Go ahead and review it. Yeah, don't, don't take the time to see the film. Well, I am going to see it this weekend, and we're going to talk about it next week. Also next week, maybe the Spaceman movie with Sandler and Mulligan. We'll see how much free time we have. That one did come exclusively to Netflix this weekend. We will also have Film Spotting Madness Best of the 50s Round 2, along, of course, with our Round 1 results. Josh, it's now time for you to take over the show. You have some plugging to do. I have some plugging because it's it's the Fear Not Book Tour Folia Do edition. I'm back on the road, Adam. <laughs> I'm going out there again. <laughs> You know, do. Fear, fear not uh, a Christian appreciation of horror movies. I We wrote and published it in time, so it'd be out well in advance of Halloween last year. Worked well. I was able to get on the road, do a lot of speaking about it in advance of that national holiday. And then afterwards, I, you know, quite frankly, I needed a break. Didn't seem appropriate to talk horror quite so much over Christmas. So put it a bit on pause, but I'm getting back out there 
to promote Fear Not, and I'd love to meet up with any film spotting listeners in these areas. So March 21, I'll be at the University of Michigan Dearborn doing a Fear Not book talk and discussion. I want to thank listener Nick Anarino for setting this up. He teaches in the Department of Language, Culture, and Arts there. I'll do a lecture. We're going to have some conversation and then an open Q&A. This is free, so if you're in the Dearborn, Detroit area, stop by on March 21. Then I'm going to head to Seattle just that weekend, a couple days later for March 23. We're going to screen The Devil's Backbone, have a discussion afterward. This is all part of the Make Believe Genre Film Fest that's organized by friend of the show, Billy Ray Bruton. So I'll introduce the screening of the 2001 Guillermo del Toro ghost story and then lead a discussion afterward about the film in the context of Fear Not. Here's the big one, Adam. I've been doing this for a a number of years now. I love it. It's a highlight of my movie year. Ebert Interruptus, 2024 at the Conference on World Affairs. This takes place at the University of Colorado Boulder, and it ties in with Fear Not because we are doing a horror film. I think for the first time, Roger Ebert started this in 1975. I'll ask you two, do you consider The Silence of the Lambs to be a horror movie? Yes or no? I understand why people do, and it's as scary as most horror movies are to me, as any good horror movie is, but I don't think of it that way. How about you, Michael? I, I, yeah, thriller. I go, th- I go through a thriller. Yeah. Psychological thriller. 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 Okay. Yeah, well, yeah, I don't know. Psychological, but, but, uh, thriller seems to, I don't, I, yeah. Great question. Eternal question about what is a horror film and what is it a really thriller. is. Yeah. It really is. But if you two are going that way, then I can claim that for the first time in Ebert Interruptus history, we're doing a horror film. We're doing the Babadook. This, this is definitely a horror oh, film. Who would yeah, question yeah. this? I know. Exactly. I'm so excited yeah. about this. Jennifer Kent's 2014 movie, it made my top 10 list that year, and it is so perfect for what Interruptus is. Really quickly, if this is new to folks, we basically screen it day one and then spend three days. This is something Roger came up with and did for so many years, decades. Three days, we'll go through it scene by scene, frame by frame if we have to, breaking it down, interactive. People in the audience can make comments, ask questions. It is so much fun. This is also free, I should add, and it takes place April 9 to 12 in Boulder, Colorado. And you know you know what else is free? The first beer on Film Spotting. We always have a Film Spotting meetup the last day of Interruptus. It's so much fun. We've been getting together at the same place. And and yeah, I'll buy you your first beer for sure. So it, come on it's out. It's interesting. When I have meetups with listeners, I buy all the beer. Oh, what's the nice difference try. there? Nice I don't... try. <laughs> Mr. No, it's true. Mr. Whenever there's an alert on, uh, uh, on the credit card, what's going on here? <laughs> I think you cut me yeah, off. That's actually, Sheila. Adam. That's Sheila in accounting. It's oh, not me. Oh, Sheila. Okay. Yeah. You know, speaking of Seattle, I think you cut me off from that when I was previously in Seattle and we may yeah. have hit the record film spotting bar bill and, and Sheila, I'm sorry, Sheila no. had to, Sheila had to reassess. That was actually, that was visa visa called and said, <laughs> we think this is fraudulent. <laughs> You've never come close to charging this much before. And, and there we go. It was, I had good, to take it was a good time. Well, we'll see yeah. if we can top that in Seattle this year, maybe the Babadook only 92 minutes long. You're going to spend three days on it. Oh, no, but you don't understand. Like, oh, I, I have a sense. Go, if you go past the 90-minute mark and try to fit that in three days with Interruptus, it gets dicey. So, yeah, we kind of needed to find something around that running time. It's going to work so well. 
Okay. This week over on our sister podcast, The Next Picture Show, it's part two of their Beach Bummers pairing with special guest friend of our show, Mariah Gates. They have Molly Manning Walker's new film, How to Have Sex, paired with 1960s Where the Boys Are, directed by Henry Levin. That is a film about some Midwestern college-age good girls who drive to Fort Lauderdale for spring break. The Next Picture Show is available every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you're not subscribed, we don't understand why. This is blasphemy. This is madness. This is absolute madness. This is madness. 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 Well, this is absolute madness, Ambassador. Why should you build such a thing? Madness. This is Sparta! We welcome Michael Phillips officially to the madness, film spotting madness. It's our ninth annual bracket style tournament. The best films of the 1950s. If you happen to be new to all of this, this is how it works. It's pretty simple. 64 film bracket, one round per week until we crown a champion. So round one's 32 matchups are set. Voting is live. Vote now. Filmspotting.net slash madness. Those polls close Monday, March 4th at noon central time. Don't have a ton of time to vote. Round two polls open shortly after that. It's all very simple except for the actual choosing part. Something else that you'll want to do before Monday, March 4th at noon is take part in the Bracket Prediction Contest, which you can find a link to as well at filmspotting.net slash madness. Again, only accepting predictions until noon on the 4th. And we award prizes for the winner of this contest, probably two winners. It's rare that it happens like it did last year. More on that in a second. But the winner of the bracket tournament will get a film spotting prize pack and be invited to join our internal bracket contest next year. And then the highest placing film spotting family member will be able to choose the topic of a future bonus episode. And if they want, they can join us for that episode. Mike Merrigan, the founding father of film spotting madness, the guy who suggested the idea nine, 10 years ago, he won it all last year and he got to come on. We did our top five. What did we do? Horror movies? Was it? A, oh, it was a horror movie draft with Mike Merrill. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was. It was a very good time. I think. I think. Did you include the Babadook on that list? Did you get it in your draft, Josh? Ooh, do you remember? Good question. I mean, when you're talking top five of all time, yeah. as good as the Babadook is, that's stiff competition. Mm. We covered this last week when we talked through the play-in round, but why the 1950s? We've done every decade from the 60s through the 2010s, which means, Michael, we've we've nailed it. We've identified the greatest film from each of the last six decades. No arguments. Do you want to know what those films are? Yes, I do. Because that is that is my life. My lifespan <laughs> are those decades. There so you I, go. OK, so here's here's what we've got, Michael. Let's go. 2001, A Space Odyssey. Yeah. The Godfather. Yeah. Do the Right Thing. Yeah. Fargo. There Will Be Blood. And Parasite. And if you don't like any of those choices, we'll blame film spotting listeners. They voted. I'm not going to mess with the listeners. They're all uh, brilliant and uh, <laughs> uh, and attractive. And uh, so, yes, yeah. uh, you know that's a great that's a great. Let's, it's let's not go. bad. No, I, I like good. it. I just I think the the glaring lack of the bandwagon in the fifties uh, mm -hmm. bracket uh, you know is enough to throw oh, me off this call. Oh, someone came with a bone to pick. <laughs> That's all right. Uh, sweet it's, small it's success. That's a real shame. It's uh, the the you know the greatest dialogue of the of the of that. Well, decade. It, it's on the list, Michael. It's on Wait, the list. Sweet, sweet smell. Yeah, it's there. It's there, and it's going to come right. up in a moment. So just oh, just hold that thought. Okay, all right, all right. Okay. Hush up, hush up, hush up. 
if, if you are saying to yourself, wow, this sounds like fun. How did I not know about the best of the 50s bracket earlier? Well, we've talked about it quite a bit over the past year or so, but also we we like to throw out the short list, which actually includes usually around 95 to 100 films that are in contention for the Madness Tournament, give everyone a chance to do their homework. That's really what drives this whole tournament for us is, is we get to fill in blind spots, lots of listeners. We see the lists. We see the comments, 200 comments on Letterboxd from people detailing how maybe they started out only seeing 32% of those 96 films or 62%. And they try to do their homework, see as many as they can so they can vote with integrity. Josh, they can vote with integrity yeah. in this tournament and not just go for the one film maybe they've seen of the two. Which 1950s film will join that Howlow list of previous winners? Well, it could be it could be Hitchcock. He's got five films in the tournament. Rear Window is the number one seed. Vertigo's number four. North by Northwest is pretty high up there. Strangers on a Train is in there. Dial M for Murder is in there. Should we pause here and get Michael's Michael's like 10-second response to Rear Window versus Vertigo? We did a can whole episode only, on this, Michael. Can you only Where go are you? 10 seconds on Where that? Where are you? We're only that's allowing crazy. You. Yeah, that's crazy. I, what I love about I lo- what I love about that uh, that uh, matchup and any any streak of four or five in a row for in the fifties for Hitchcock is that it, it just makes hash of the idea of that there is a type of one type of Hitchcock film. I mean that it, right, the the thing in criticism or even just you know conversation that kind of makes me nuts is people say, oh, you know, it's, it, oh, it's classic Hitchcock when they were describing something else. It's like, okay, are you talking about Virgo? Are you talking about Rear Window? Very little, very little overlap of any type with any of those. So to answer your question, Josh, uh, it's a stupid question, so I'm not going to answer it. I mean, they're too- uh, Of course it is. We based an episode around it. (laughs) Yeah. What do I want to see if I'm a little tired, if I, you know, like right now, right now, what do I, what would I commit to? Rear Window. A little drowsy. Yeah, Rear Window. Yeah, Rear Window. Because it's fun. There it is. And it's got sneaky- Sneaky bits of seriousness in it. Vertigo yes, thank is you. just sort of a hairy nightmare, you know, and, and that's that's a little tougher to put on casual. Yes, I, I would agree with that. Thank I think you. that's Sounds where like we Josh landed pretty, well. much, yeah, which, pretty much. Which overall recognizing both our masterpieces, let's be clear. Yeah. Akira Kurosawa it. certainly has a shot as well. He's got four films in the tourney. Number three seed, The Seven Samurai. Number 12 seed, Rashomon. Ikiru and Throne of Blood also among the 64. Or maybe it's an upstart. Maybe the little film that could, Singing in the Rain, just a number two seed could win it all. Or the number five seed, Sunset Boulevard. Wilder's got a few in here, as you would expect. Another film in the top 10, and some like it hot. I'm going to say Ace in the Hole, one of my favorite Wilder films, doesn't have a chance of winning it all. It probably doesn't have a chance of getting out of the first round, but I love it. And I'm happy it made the dance, even if it had to beat out a face in the crowd in the play-in round. So it's tested. I don't know that it's got what it takes to beat the film it's up against here in round one, which we'll touch on. But Adam, are you glad that Film Spotty Madness, Best of the 1950s, prompted me to see Ace in the Hole? Yes. The many times you've brought it up on the show. And I've always had to say, yeah, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen it. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen it. I haven't (laughs) seen it. I've seen it. It's really good. It's really good. It's really good. Maybe for me, not top tier Wilder like it is for you, but still really good. At some point, perhaps when we're out of ideas, a a revisit and we can talk further. Okay. I'll take it. Even if you don't think it's top tier. Josh, as the absolute, you know, the Christian among the three of us, 
to not have seen Ace in the Hole with that amazing line where she says, kneeling bags my nylons. That's why I don't go to church. I mean, that is the greatest Catholic line in the history of, you know. Yeah, it's the same reason I don't go. The dialogue. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, the dialogue is superb in it. Absolutely, Michael. And and what was that? I'm going to have to get that on my, next time I go to church and, and we use the name tags. What was that? You said absolute Christian? Was that, was that the, fra- uh, no, was that the um, phrase? I don't no, remember I, what adjective he used, but it yeah, was accurate. I think the it was tallest, uh, tallest, it ta- oh, tallest. Okay, I'm gonna put, I'm gonna write that under Josh on the name tag. Thank you. <laughs> okay, if you would like to see all of that, filmspotting.net/slash/madness. That's where the round one voting is. We're just gonna keep saying it until you finally go and vote. Some round one thoughts in a second. But we have to highlight some of those play-in results. These are the films that had to compete just to get in the tournament. And we're going to give you some of the results. These are the closest battles, by far the closest. It was a Douglas Sirk play-in. Imitation of Life did beat All That Heaven Allows 50.7% to 49.3%. Rigged. Very close. Both great films. Rigged, yeah. We first had, we had first a, result, Michael, is calling shenanigans. <laughs> How about this one? Really tight here. Three George Stephen films. Shane beating out A Place in the Sun and Giant 36% to 33% to 32%. Here's another one that surprises me. I don't know if it will surprise our, our panel here, the panel I'm talking to, Josh and Michael or other listeners, but we had a Disney matchup. I think, Josh, you went with Sleeping. Did you go Sleeping Beauty or mm-hmm, Cinderella? Did mm-hmm. we agree? Yeah, you went Sleeping Beauty. I went with Cinderella, one of and maybe the first film I ever saw in a movie theater. But listeners did not. Cinderella yeah. got 47% of the vote. Sleeping Beauty taking it. Yeah, this is uh, really wait encouraging. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I, if, this, if this bracket had been done properly, Lady and the Tramp would have beat them both. Okay. Oh, my Okay. God. Just uh, tearing Michael. down the selection committee. Wow! Next yep. year, next year we'll ask you to be part of it, Michael. I'm sure you'll have a blast. <laughs> uh, Michael, say your say say you have vacation <laughs> say you're plans. Busy. You have to wash your hair. Is it too late to retract what I just said? And I didn't even realize I was speaking out loud. So I'm, I'm very sorry. Very sorry. <laughs> okay, okay, Michael. I'd love to hear your take on this one. Your guy, Vincent Minnelli, the bad and the beautiful, up against Judy Garland and George Cukor's A Star Is Born. Stars worn by two and a half times, I bet. Well, but but which one do you want to win? God. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, all right, all right, uh, Stars Born. No, oh, I, wow. I would have gone The Bad and the Beautiful. Josh yeah. did as well, but, well, actually, Bad and the Beautiful won 53% to 47%. It did? Michael, bad and yeah, beautiful close. Yeah. yeah, but it's it, it advanced to the tournament. I'm Finally, thrilled. we called this play-in our marathon discoveries. Ida Lupino's The Hitchhiker up against Yusef Chaheen's Cairo Station. Yeah, that's how we roll here on Film Spotting Madness, The Hitchhiker <laughs> up against Cairo Station. And Lupino's in. 55% to 45%, but a good showing for Cairo Station, a film and a title that was new to many of us, including many of us here on Film Spotting, as we approached our African Cinema Marathon last year. So thank you to everyone who participated in the play-in round. Here we are now with round one. A few quick thoughts on some of the matchups. I'm going to give you some fodder. Josh, Michael, you can jump in, maybe throw out a few matchups of your own that stand out. I looked initially at the ones that were the toughest to predict. Again, this is a a prediction challenge contest. You do have to sort of put your 
yourself in the in the shoes or in the headspace of the voter and try to imagine how this is going to all play out, different from voting with your heart. And I had three that stood out as being really difficult. I mean, I'll be wrong about several matchups, but in terms of trying to predict them and having a gut feeling, the aforementioned imitation of life advanced to play against the also aforementioned Sleeping Beauty. And I know that it feels like a Disney film will win this one because it's Disney and more people, logically more people have seen it than the Cirque film. It also makes sense. This would be the toughest matchup. This is the 32 versus the 33. So there's not really supposed to be a clear pick here. I really don't know which way this one goes. I mean, if I have to predict, I guess I'm going, I'm going with beauty on my bracket. Really? Okay. But I don't know for sure. Again, I just think more people have seen it, Josh. Yeah. I mean, uh, that's probably true, but among people bothering to vote and yeah, it, it, so this, we run into this every year. Is it personal mm-hmm. favorites or is it people wanting to represent the decade? Because if, yeah. if they want to represent the decade, they're going to think despite the play and vote imitation life of life is more representative of the Cirque films that in their own way defined that decade, Disney's been around forever. Disney has made films that have had a larger cultural footprint. And so that makes me think they would go to imitation of life. But yeah, if it's just like, what movie have I seen? Sure. That might be the way it goes. So here are two more tough ones to predict. And based on what I've heard, what I've seen on social media so far, my hunch is that I predicted incorrectly. This is a case where myself and Sam as the selection committee are not in lockstep with the minds of film spotting listeners. It's two Fellini films. We've got the great Giulietta Messina in Knights of Cabiria up against Gene Kelly in An American in Paris and Hitchcock, Strangers on a Train against La Strada. La Strada, one of those films that, you know, when you think of a movie you need to watch to be introduced to foreign language film to a great like Fellini. La Strada is one of those films. More famous, certainly, than Knights of Cabiria, I think, though I I prefer Cabiria. I don't know how this goes. It sounds like both Fellinis might go down in round one of Film Spotting Madness. I just couldn't, I couldn't get a handle on these two. Actually, that you're right. I think, I think they might. I'm not sure that Fellini is, there's a lot of international directors that this generation, in the last 20 years or so, they are, like in Antonioni, Jean Renoir, they're not on the curriculum like they used to be steadily. You know, I think I think a whole generation of academics are teaching maybe different examples of of that of whatever type of film they think those films represent. I, I think we're kind of I, they don't quite have the cultural currency they used to, mm-hmm. and and honestly, that's how it should be. You just have to kind of swim with it as it as it comes in and out of focus, you know, culturally, but. I'm fine with both Fellini's actually going on. I, I vastly prefer Cabiria to La Strada, and I continue to have the very unpopular opinion that here's my March Madness equivalent. Uh, if you had to pick who is the greater film artist, director Federico Fellini or his composer, Nino Rota, it's Nino Rota every time. Hmm. Yeah. Well, it, it is tough to argue with that just because Rota is such an incredible composer and you can't think about those films without thinking about his work they they really are inseparable so i I don't know that i'll argue too hard there michael though you have certainly spent a lot more time than i have thinking about that topic toughest to pick just for me personally it also goes back to fellini here with strangers on a train in la strada 
I haven't seen La Strada in a very long time, but I do think it's a very good film, even though, again, I think Kabiri is the better film. And I do really love Strangers on a Train. It's hard to choose. It's just really hard to choose. And then, Michael, here's one for you. Yes, The Sweet Smell of Success is a great film, but I also think Godzilla is a great film oh, God, from that yeah. period. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah, that one's almost thoroughly great. I, I just saw Godzilla again for the first time yeah uh at the at the um at the screening at the Cisco Center a, a couple weeks ago and uh I mean it holds up wonderfully and uh well, uh, the two I love sweet small success though. I know you do <laughs> and it doesn't even hold up do. toward the end I mean I know Josh I think you pointed it out right I mean uh it's just you know it is not nobody thinks it's particularly strong in the in the last 20 25 minutes because it's just not quite the strain of the rewrites, I think, shows up toward the end. Mm, yeah, this is one, Michael, I, I actually, a blind spot, I knocked out in preparation. And I liked it. Let, let me oh, be clear. Okay. I liked it. But I thought it would be something that um, completely wowed me over when I knew what the plot was, basically. And, you know, Tony, Tony Curtis is just Done. incredible in this role. Like, just, yeah. you know, dripping with insincerity. <laughs> what's, what's the line? Something about well, him having an ice cream face, like yeah, in a character. Yeah, the boy with the ice cream yeah, face. Yeah, and it's yeah. like, oh my gosh, that's it. Like if you if you want to ever describe a performance and, and how wonderful if that was written before Tony Curtis took it on, right? So but yeah, yeah um there's something about it that held me back and, and I wasn't unaware of the whole rewrite thing and, and all that. Maybe that's involved, but um yeah. liked it, didn't love it as much as I thought I would. So a final one that I still haven't voted for at this point. I can't bring myself to choose between these two films. Elia Kazan, On the Waterfront, against Kurosawa and Throne of Blood, his Macbeth adaptation. Mm. I don't know. I just don't know what I'm supposed to do with that. I mean, that's, that's madness to me, and I may just have to abstain. I don't know if I can vote. It makes me mad. It makes me mad, and I, and I helped form the bracket, and I'm mad yeah. at myself. I, I have a similar journey to take, Adam, and I'm a okay. little behind you and Sam. So haven't voted in any of these yet, but took a peek at them today. And for me, the madness representation is wild strawberries versus gentlemen prefer blondes. Yeah. <laughs> what? Thank you, Michael. Thank you very much, Michael. Nothing I will say after that cackle could better describe the yeah. stupidity of what we're doing here. I mean, look, they both have great musical numbers for sure. Thank, like, yes, that's a good point. Yes. That's a good point. Maybe that's my way in, Michael. Maybe that's where I'll start to compare the two and how do I choose among them? I mean, you have like this, you know, not the most serious Bergman, right? This is early. There's still humor in Wild Strawberries. There's a certain playfulness. But yeah, there's a lot of death. There's a lot of God. There's a lot of all the stuff we come to associate with Bergman. And then you have Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which is such a delight, so much fun, probably for me, helped me come to feel like I understood Marilyn Monroe as a screen presence, the brilliance of her in the awareness of what she's doing and playing the audience's perception and her own body like an instrument for what the movie needs. And it is so much fun. And you have Jane Russell, you know, 
matching her in terms of some of those musical numbers. I think, Michael, I, I might like, you know, the what's the Russell number with the beefcake, you know, swimmers in the background? Uh, ain't there <laughs> anyone here for love? Yeah, yeah. yeah that, that's almost as much fun as Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. This is, and, and we're not talking about like a, a musical like toss-off either. This is Howard Hawks directing this thing. So, yeah. so like, you know, you say, oh, but are you really going to vote against Bergman for a musical uh, well, it's Howard Hawks. Does that change your mind at all? Well, now remind me, Adam, which of the, is it the Bergman or the Howard Hawks film that, that where Jane Russell uh, shows up and says, court's free. <laughs> I, I just want to make sure I'm not misremembering yeah, that. Yeah, no, that's, that's, okay, that's a I'd different. Go, I, I would go with. That's uh, a different Bergman. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay, Unreal, I would that, go with. That Bergman was never released. Oh, we understand. <laughs> I, actually, I think that does come from the Hawks, so I think I'll go uh -huh. Hawks on that one. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You know what, Michael? I, Fair I, enough. I think I'm going to go with you. Like, I thought it would help no. me. On my website, <laughs> on my website, I have a four-star rating. I gave them both four out of four stars. That's not helpful. Go to Letterboxd, where they allow for more nuance. I did give Wild Strawberries five out of five, and I gave Gentlemen Prefer Blondes four and a half out of five. Answer, right? Okay. I, would do the the answer. I would do the same, actually. Yeah, I would do the same. Yeah, but you know what? Screw you both. Gentlemen prefer blondes <laughs> is getting my vote. There you go. Well, I mean, Michael's agreeing with you, Josh. You're uh, with me, I, Michael? I, I yeah. am. I, I don't know if it's the be a, a better film. I think it's it just, if, if whatever film has Jane Russell saying, Court's Free is, is the better <laughs> film for me in this matter. That's, okay. so. that's as good a logic as you'll find yeah. in Madness. All right. <laughs> so... Last category for me. We'll see how you guys react to these. Upsets I'm rooting for. Right. So this is a case where I'm going to give you two titles. The second film is the one that is seated lower, meaning in theory it has less of a chance of advancing, and it's going up against a film that is favored. However, I greatly favor that lower seed. So the second film here is the one I love, and it doesn't mean I dislike any of the other titles I'm going to mention first, just when I think about my preference for the second title, I, I, I want to live in a world where somehow these films are going to win, but I don't think there's much chance really in any of these cases. So the first one, Stanley Kubrick's The Killing up against Dreyer's Ordit. <laughs> it's Ordit all the way for me, okay? Oh, absolutely. Rebel, Rebel Without a Cause against the world of Apu. These are two films I had in my sight and sound all-time greatest top 10. So clearly, I want those two to win. Streetcar Named Desire against the earrings of Madame de... Ooh, a that film of, that either made that top 10 or I strongly considered. Here's one I know I'm not, I'm not going to win. But High Noon versus Jules Dassin, Rafifi. Love Rafifi. That would, that would be beautiful stuff. If, it, if it moved on. I said Ace in the Hole had a tough draw. Ace in the Hole is up against the bridge on the River Kwai. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that's going to be a blowout. And finally, I think I'm really, you know, I'm going to be in the minority on this one. We'll see if either of you go along with me here. But in the Battle of Hitchcock's North by Northwest against Diabolique, I prefer Diabolique. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, better too. Josh, you heard it. Absolutely. No hesitation. Yeah. That, Michael, I, tell us we're nuts. I think that's fairly No, obvious. no, I I I would go Diabolik. I, I would. Uh you're right. So no, you're not nuts. You're uh I don't I must be just, you know, getting older. Uh, you know, a little 
and just oh, I'll agree with the, I'll agree with these guys. Uh, okay. Uh, we'll but, take you know, it. I, yeah, Michael, you're just getting worn there. down by madness is what's happening. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I am. I, uh, uh, I've always had a problem. Do you, do you feel the same way about the climax to North by Northwest? I mean, it's yes. so famous, yes. North, but I just feel like they're walking around at sort of half speed. Bernard Irwin's music sort of like scoring a much more exciting set of action than we're actually seeing. I mean, so I, I feel like that movie kind of just doesn't land it, frankly. Hmm. So, well, yeah. Let's close out the madness talk. Any other matchups, anything you see when you look at the bracket that stands out as particularly insane or a matchup that's especially easy for you? Well, there's one, I mean, you know, enough Hitchcock talk for, and he's certainly well represented in this uh, decade, but uh, I mean, I think Dial In For Murders, I'm very eager to see it in 3D at the 3D festival coming up with the music box. I don't think it's much of a movie otherwise. Uh, and I don't think it has... Quality-wise, in my head and heart, it doesn't really have much up against Tokyo Story. Yeah. Yeah. If that's how Fair you feel about Dial for Murder, you <laughs> probably yeah. Yeah. Yeah, aren't going to pick it over the Ozu. Let's go ahead and cut off the madness talk there. Round one. You can vote now. Participate in the insanity. We'll narrow this down round by round as we get to one final greatest film of the 1950s. Filmspotting.net slash madness. Josh, Michael, that's our show. Michael Phillips, thank you for indulging us, not only in Film Spotting Madness talk, but giving us your Oscar selections. We really appreciate it. We yeah, love thanks, talking Michael. to you. Thanks, Michael. Always a good time, guys. Thank you. Where can our listeners find more of your stuff? Well, they can they can attempt to navigate the Tribune website if they want to go to chicagotribune.com and then look up uh, whatever the latest redesign uh, forces you to do to find my stuff. Um, so... <laughs> Honestly, that's all I can say. And uh, I, I got to say, I got to say, Michael, have you have you been through the early years of the the transfer from print to web at a newspaper? One of my favorite things about your appearances on the show is your description of the of the paper's website and its later website. latest iteration. Glad to hear things are improving. Let's say that. Yeah. <laughs> well, in fact, I hear they are. I hear this. Uh, the actual new webs that might actually get you more of the old stuff without too much grief. There you go. But I wouldn't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't resent anybody from subscribing for an ally subscription because I like to eat, and it's been almost an hour since I <laughs> ate last. So let's, you know. But thank you, thank you, thanks for having yeah, me on again. Keep keep food on the table. Support Michael Phillips. You know, download our show. We'll throw a few bucks his way as well. He'll yeah. he'll get some money, a percentage for every download we get. How's that? I like it. <laughs> Should we do it that way? Thank you, Michael. <laughs> If you'd like to connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Letterboxd, you can find Adam at Film Spotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Film Spotting Madness Best of the 1950s voting is live. To vote in round one, go to filmspotting.net or filmspotting.net slash madness. For show t-shirts or other merch, you can go to filmspotting.net slash shop. We are listener supported. You can join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com. For as little as five bucks a month, you can listen to the show early and ad-free. You'll also get a weekly newsletter, monthly bonus shows, and access to the entire Film Spotting Archive. In those Film Spotting Archives, reviews of many of the Oscar nominees we talked about on the show, including, well, really, Josh, it looks like a full boat with one exception. American Fiction is in there. Anatomy of a Fall with spoilers. Barbie, The Holdovers, Killers of the Flower Moon, also with spoilers. Maestro, now with even more hate and vitriol. <laughs> 
Oppenheimer, past lives, poor things. Yeah, we reviewed all of them. The only one that didn't get a full conversation, it certainly warrants at least one or two, the zone of interest that did get some time on our 2023 rap party and our top 10 films of 2023. All that and more in the archive available at filmspottingfamily.com. Out in wide release, Dune Part 2. Josh has seen it. I have not. Streaming, Spaceman. This is the new Adam Sandler movie. He's in serious mode again with Oscar nominee Carey Mulligan. So it's very serious. Isabella Rossellini and the voice of Paul Dano. During a research mission, an astronaut, Sandler, discovers that his marriage is in trouble. I'm intrigued. Next week, maybe we'll get to Spaceman. We will definitely get to Dune Part 2. And we'll definitely get to Part 2, or actually Round 2, of Film Spotting Madness Best of the 50s. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Veronica Phillips. And special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at WBEZ.org. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. Film Spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.